The following program has some offensive language. Though none of us would be here without the verb deployed, it's thought by many better not to hear the verb deployed. Monday, May 23rd, 2022, from Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist, I'm Mike Pesca. Some sports news, baseball news. Over the weekend, I'll read you three headlines in ascending order of accuracy. SB Nation, Tim Anderson put Josh Donaldson in check after his racist Jackie comment. Well, was it racist? That's the entire crux of the issue. CBS says Yankees third baseman uses racial remark Jackie toward White Sox star. Yes, I suppose a racial remark is softening from racist, but again, what exactly was said? Why was it said? ESPN headline comment by New York Yankees Josh Donaldson to Chicago White Sox star Tim Anderson called racist. Indeed, it was called racist. The White Sox manager, Tony La Russa, called it that. What happened was Josh Donaldson, while on the base paths, said to Tim Anderson, hey, Jackie, how is it doing? We'll get to why. And then soon thereafter, the White Sox catcher, Yasmani Grandal, got in Donaldson's face. Why are you saying that to my teammate? The bench is cleared. No punches were thrown, but no one understood what was going on. No one at the game, no one watching TV. Why were these two teams at each other's throats? After the game, Josh Donaldson explained why he said Jackie. All right, so first inning, I called him Jackie. So let me give you a little context of that. 2019, he came out with the interview, said that he's a new Jackie Robinson in baseball. He's going to bring back fun for the game, right? And 2019, when I played for Atlanta, we actually joked about that on the game. Um, I don't know what's changed from, and I've said it to him uh, in years past, not not in any manner that just joking around for the fact that he called himself Jackie Robinson, you know. Um, so, you know, if something has changed, uh, from that, like my meaning of that is not at any term, uh, trying to be racist by any fact of the matter. Um, it was just off of an interview that what he called himself. And when we said that before we joked about it, he laughed, whatever. Uh, as you could tell in our series that we played, there's been multiple times where I've tried to defuse the situation. Like I, I took responsibility for the tag, wasn't trying to do anything there. Like today, just trying to defuse it. Like, hey, like make light. Like, hey, we're not trying to start any brawls or anything like that. Um, obviously, he deemed that it was disrespectful. And look, if he did, I apologize. Like that's not what I was trying to do by any manner. Um, and you know. That's really, that's what happened. Racist? Like I said, Tony La Russa said it was. Tim Anderson agreed with that. Offensive? Tim Anderson was offended. There is one standard of offensiveness of a given statement that it should be generally determined by the offended party. Another standard is the intent of the maker should be taken into account. I do think you should take that into account. I also don't think that ends the conversation. There are also human emotions involved. These two got in a contentious wrestling match a week ago in Chicago when Donaldson tagged Anderson a little bit too zestily at third base. There is one thing I think I can give good insight on, and it's the well-documented idea that Josh Donaldson is disliked or dislikable, quite so. In 
In 2016, there was a sportscasting.com article, most disliked players in the game. Josh Donaldson was number three. The twinsdaily.com, the fan site for Donaldson's last team, had the headline, Is Josh Donaldson one of the all-time least likable twins players? There's a video curated of Donaldson on the Blue Jays called Donaldson, the angriest player in baseball. Now add to that Liam Hendricks, who plays for the White Sox, was Donaldson's teammate while with the Blue Jays. Yeah, yeah, that's completely inappropriate. And then after hearing what was said after the game, uh, usually you have inside jokes with people you get along with, not people that don't get along at all. And so that, uh, that statement right there was complete bullshit. But then again, my, uh, my feelings towards the individual in question are pretty well documented in the fact that we don't get along. And the fact that I have now spoken to, I think it's four separate clubhouses that he's been into, and as a whole, none of them have gotten along. So, yeah, him trying to pull that, trying to whip out that narrative is completely not a bullshit. So, the Donaldson, that guy's a dick. That seems to be just another mark against the third baseman. I mean, if the sentiment were Donaldson, he's such a good guy, he never would have meant offense. That certainly seems a little bit exculpatory. So, this guy's a jerk. That seems inculpatory. But I wonder if the opposite isn't true. Because Donaldson is disliked, it's easy to indulge an appetite for punishment. Well, let's not think through the consequence or really understand and decide what makes something offensive, what then takes that offensive thing and makes it racist. Let's just say to ourselves, oh, that Donaldson's he's a jerk. He never should have said it. And he never should have said it. And the Yankees manager, Aaron Boone, even said, I don't understand why he said it. But none of that changes the facts of Donaldson's explanation, which is that, according to him, the two joked in the past about Tim Anderson being the next Jackie Robinson. So in 2019, it's, hey, it's Tim Anderson, the new Jackie Robinson. And Tim Anderson laughs, hey, yeah, sure, sure. And then in 22, it's, hey, Jackie. And Tim's thinking, you know what? Shut the hell up. Donaldson's context, 2019, it was no big deal. It's no longer Anderson's context in 2022. Now, Anderson's thinking, I am no longer amused or wish to pretend I'm amused. But is it a racist incident, a racial incident, or a social incident? I'd say it's probably a social incident with racial dimensions, and all of that is something Major League Baseball is eager to avoid. And by the time you hear this, Major League Baseball may have punished Donaldson with a suspension, or the Yankees may have suspended him, or I'm hearing talk that Donaldson and the Yankees might not be long for each other. Donaldson was the MVP in 2015, but it just hasn't been good this year. The trend I do know for corporations in 2022 is to perceive underreacting to such an incident as having more costs than overreacting. But I do think a suspension would immediately catapult this story into becoming the water cooler talk of even the non-baseball world. Who knows? A water cooler near you may be buzzing about it as we speak. On the show today... The Democrats in New York sought an edge. Instead, they caught one. But first, Michael Mann is the Distinguished Professor of Atmospheric Science and the Director of Earth System Science Center at Penn State. But he's now moving to the University of Pennsylvania. Big Michael Mann personnel announcement. Not first here, but here in this space. When he goes to U of P, Mann will be a Distinguished Research Fellow at the Annenberg Public Policy Center, meaning he researches climate change, and he also has expertise on communicating his findings. 
His latest book, now available in paperback, is The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet. Michael Mann is up next. This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. The director, Michael Mann, gave us heat. The professor, Michael Mann, is working to lessen it. This one, this Michael Mann, who we're talking to now, is a presidential distinguished professor in the Department of Earth and Environmental Science at the University of Pennsylvania. He will also be, this is a big deal, the inaugural director for the new Penn Center for Science, Sustainability, and the Media. We're here to talk about the paperback edition of his new and exciting book, The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet. Professor Michael Mann, thanks for joining me on The Gist. Uh, thank you, Mike. It's great to be with you. You hate that joke, right? The Michael Mann joke? <laughs> oh, you know, I, I once, um, I, I was the opening interview on Bill Maher, and the first thing he did was to talk about the director, and I should have made that <laughs> joke, and, yes. and I did right. Of all the movies that he's done, he <laughs> is the one that's right in your wheelhouse. So I think we or most of my listeners certainly know about the targets of let's keep uh, warming below two degrees Celsius or one and a half degrees. I'm not sure that everyone knows that this new study and one study isn't the end all be all, but I did see it in nature. And it suggests that it is likely that the two degree Celsius figure will be met if all the nations of the world stick to their goals, which is indeed a big if. But like I said, this is one study. Do you buy it? Yeah, it's it's a huge if, right? Because what it, what they did is they looked at all the commitments that are on the table, um, and not everybody historically has met their commitments when it comes to these climate negotiations. So if everybody did keep their commitments, then for the first time, based on the progress that was made in the Glasgow uh, conference, COP26, uh, late last year, um, we, it now appears that there's a good chance that warming would remain under two degrees Celsius. So there are two important caveats here. First, you know, it's one thing to, to talk the talk, something else to walk the walk. We actually need to see these countries implement policies that allow them to actually meet those obligations. That's the first point. The second point, two degrees C, you know, nearly four Fahrenheit is still too much. We've got to keep warming below one and a half. Uh, Celsius. So the way I sort of characterize that study, it reminds us that it's not too late, that we are making progress. We can prevent the worst consequences of climate change from happening, but there's still a fair amount of work to, to do here. And I think everything you just said underlines most of the biggest points that you're making. One is that progress is possible. Two is, let's not be sanguine, not just about the possibility of progress, but the definition of progress. Progress is lessening the bad stuff that's going to happen. But also three, and this is where you really convince me, 
individual responsibility is not going to get there. When we talk about the commitments, they're not the commitments of you and me or our neighbors. They're the commitments of countries. And without the commitments of countries, you know, forget about everyone changing from an electric vehicle to a gas-guzzling vehicle. That just won't do it based on personal choice. Yeah, thanks. This this is, you know, an important point in, in the book uh, that I try to convey um, that, you know, individual action, uh, personal behavioral changes, uh, lifestyle changes aren't going to give us the massive reductions we need. Uh, now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't strive to do all those things. Of course, we should you know, do everything we can to minimize our environmental impact and our carbon footprint. And many of the things that we do to do that make us feel better about ourselves. They set a good example for others. They make us healthier. They save us money. It's sort of win-win. But there are bad actors out there, and I call them out in the book, um, uh, polluters and those who promote their agenda of continued fossil fuel reliance, uh, who would like us to think that that's the solution, that the entire solution is just us changing our diet, not flying anymore. It's very convenient to them because it takes the pressure off of the need for policy, the need for politicians to implement policies that put a price on carbon that provides subsidies for renewable energy, that block new fossil fuel infrastructure, all of these things that the fossil fuel industry doesn't want to have happen. And so they've engaged in this deflection campaign to convince us that we don't need any of those policies. It's just individual behavioral change. And too often we actually see, you know, perfectly respectable media outlets buying into that framing. They've been very effective at getting us to internalize that sort of thinking. And so, you know, in the New York Times, for example, we see lots and lots of articles about all of these lifestyle changes you can make to minimize your carbon footprint when the big carbon footprint is the fossil fuel industry. A hundred uh, polluters are responsible for 70 percent of the global carbon emissions. Right. So let's talk, though, about the personal responsibility and how it might be actually a pretty huge thing. I don't want to even say personal responsibility, personal choices. Yeah. I look at electric vehicles and without the huge public appetite that occurred, I guess because, you know, Tesla's, that's the biggest one now. They seem cool. But people really want to, for a number of reasons, have cars that don't require gasoline. So this is it's it's cyclical, but there is the appetite from the consumer. There is the incentive for the producer. Yep. This will produce, and then there's the government incentive part, but this will produce, at least in a wealthy country like America, where these cars are a lot more expensive and will be for some time, this will produce a pretty big effect, right? If you look at the projections of where uh, um, catalytic converter cars are declining and electric vehicles are increasing. This is not something to sneeze at, is it? No. And, you know, and, and that is one big chunk of our carbon emissions here in the United States, uh, somewhere in the vicinity of about 20%. So, you know, uh, our carbon emissions come from all of our activities, transportation, electricity use, um, you know, agriculture, everything. But this is a pretty big piece of the pie. And so, you know, the challenge here is, we need to electrify transportation, and then we need to decarbonize the grid. So if the grid is powered by renewable energy and you're charging your car off the grid, then you're charging your car off of wind and solar. And, and that's the transition we have to make. And so electric vehicles are an important part of that. Right now, you know, ironically, there are states like North Carolina, which uh, with conservative state legislatures, which have gone out of their way to disincentivize 
uh, you know, electric vehicles. At one point, they tried to pass legislation outlawing the sale of Teslas in the state of uh, North Carolina. How's that for the free market? <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's, there's, there's great irony, of course, just in the politics of that. But the bottom line is that transition is happening. We're seeing people move in that direction, but we need incentives, right? Uh, because we can't just rely upon people who want to buy Teslas and electric vehicles because it makes them feel good and they're willing to pay extra for that. We need to make sure that the incentives are such that they make that choice simply because it's economically advantageous to them. And that's where we need policies. That's where we need those incentives. The biggest thing that at least our government could do, and we'll get to India and China, is uh, I don't want to mischaracterize you, but you really emphasize the importance of a, a good, efficient carbon tax. Yeah, I think that's an important potential tool. You know, my view is that those of us climate advocates like myself, um, you know, we have a role in informing that conversation. Uh, but, you know, I stop short of trying to prescribe what those solutions will look like. So, you know, if it's a carbon tax, if that's what you know, our politicians in good faith representing our interests rather than the fossil fuel industry, if they decide that that is sort of, you know, uh, a, an agreed upon strategy, that's great. Um, there are alternatives, subsidi- subsidies for renewable energy or the sort of clean energy standard that was one of the provisions in Build Back Better. There are different ways to sort of level that playing field so renewable energy can compete fairly against fossil fuel energy. And a carbon tax, carbon pricing is, is one important way of doing it. Um, I would argue it, it's been successful where it's been implemented in uh, Australia. Uh, they had a, a basically a carbon tax um, for a couple of years before Tony Abbott, conservative prime minister, came in and got rid of it. And in the time that they had it, they saw carbon emissions come down quite a bit, um, 10% within the first nine months. Uh, it was really working. And the fears of some that a carbon tax could be regressive, that it could hurt you know, the poor and frontline communities was really allayed by the way that it played out. Uh, you know, low-income earners actually benefited because of the way that the revenue was returned to, um, you know, to, to citizens. And so there is a way to do something like carbon pricing in a manner that's effective and is just, doesn't put undue burden on those with the least resources who had the least role in creating the problem in the first place. There is the idea, the idiom, I think it was Samuel Johnson who at least gets credited with it, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. I normally think about that with all of policy. But with climate change, there is also the message, good enough isn't good enough. (laughs) And there's no such thing as good, we have to be better. And if I had advice or analysis, I would say when going to craft the messages in the moment, think about what happens five years from now when the prediction of if we don't do this, it's going to be it's going to be misery. Think about what happens if you don't do that in five years. There's a little bit of I, I can imagine all the climate activists who are as impassioned as can be. There's no limiting mechanism for how dire you want the messaging to be, except if you think about in five years and we don't hit it, what's what's the takeaway that people are going to have? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I try to do and, and in the book, I, I, I try to you know make it clear that by some measure, you know, dangerous climate change has arrived, right? If you're Puerto Rico, if you're Houston... Uh, if you're California, if you're Australia, if you're, you know, Europe, I mean, the floods, the heat waves, the wildfires, the superstorms, 
the inundation now of our coastlines with high tides, with simply with high tides in places like Florida, you know, it, dangerous and damaging climate change is, is here, okay? And to me, that's sort of a liberating concept. It's a liberating notion because what it tells us is it's not binary. It's not, you know, win, lose. Um, it's about how bad are we willing to let it get? And we've let it get pretty bad because we didn't take the actions we could have decades ago. We can prevent the worst consequences. We can prevent it from getting worse. And the science here is our friend because the science over the last decade tells us that when we stop putting carbon pollution into the atmosphere, the plant stops warming up. And you still see this flawed um, and outdated thinking in a lot of, you know, it's fairly widespread in sort of the public discourse over climate change that we're, we've got decades more of warming already locked in that we can't prevent. That's not true. The science tells us that's not true. What the science says is when our carbon emissions go to zero, the surface temperatures on the planet stop increasing. That's the reason we can talk about a uh, carbon budget. There's a certain amount of carbon that we can burn and keep warming below one and a half Celsius. That budget is being rapidly depleted. So, you know, as I like to say, there's the urgency. We're, our budget is running out, but there's the agency. We still have a budget. It's not zero. It's not negative. Yeah. So now we get to perhaps the challenging portion of the interview. Can the world change without America? So you ask the, you know, the, the, the key question here. Um, I think without leadership by the United States, it's very difficult to see any sort of uh, global agreement, um, global action that limits warming below those dangerous levels that we're talking about, one and a half Celsius, three Fahrenheit. Um, that's not going to happen without concerted action. And I don't think concerted action is going to happen without the world's largest legacy polluter, the United States, taking a lead. And so the good news is we have an administration that's tried to do that, the Biden administration through executive actions, um, et cetera, by making commitments uh, it, because of, you know, diplomacy with um, China and, and the rest of the world. We've seen some real progress, but the Biden administration can't make good on its commitments without these efforts being codified in legislation. And so in the end, our credibility on the world stage, and it's essential that we lead and, and that we have credibility in our efforts, and our, our credibility depends on us being able to meet the commitments we've made. Our ability to meet the commitments we've made is going to require legislation in the U.S. Congress. Right now, we don't have the votes there to get it through. Um, we've got 48 Democrats and uh, two supposed Democrats who really are caucusing with the Republicans on this issue right now. Can America change with just the Democratic Party doing the advocating and acting? You know, I, I wish we lived in uh, a country where there still was some bipartisan goodwill and you had, you know, politicians crossing the aisle to work with colleagues on the other side. Um, the reality is that there is only one party that seems to have any interest, not just in legislating on climate, but in legislating, in governing, <laughs> um, in, in building something up rather than tearing it down. And that is going to have to change if we are to see cooperation. Um, 
in the current political atmosphere, the only way to get climate action uh, legislation through Congress is going to be by electing a larger number of Democrats uh, to the Senate. Because the reason I asked that is I've looked at your Twitter feed and at one recently you tweeted they're Republicans. So of course they lied. You tweeted, you tweeted Dems have a story to tell. It's not hard. It's the defining archetype rebel alliance versus galactic galactic empire, free peoples of middle earth versus Mordor Democrats v Republicans, good versus evil. And I said to myself, he, all he is doing is in adding to the polarization. We're never going to change if, you know, the main, one of the main experts and the main expert on messaging is just, who wants to save the earth is going scorched earth against 50 something percent of the American people. If you look at their votes. I say it's not 50, uh, it's not the people. It's people who are not being well represented by. Sure, but given elected. the structure of our government and how gerrymandering and the the uh, uh, electoral college works. Uh, well, even know, more than that, I, I'm yeah. saying that you've got politicians who are not at all representing the interests of those who voted for them. And so. I agree. But the point is either you can have a public facing rhetorical strategy that welcomes in Republicans, or you could try to torpedo them yeah, because you can't. you've identified them as yeah. evil. And so you've done um, second. my view right now is you can't do that. I mean, you have at some point in, 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 you know, in the 1940s, there was a point where we had to say there is a political movement here that is evil and a threat to the world. And the Republican Party, sadly, sadly, sadly to many faithful Republicans, um, and there are many, you know, uh, polit uh, you know uh, Republicans out there uh, of goodwill um, who have said that they, know, they feel like their, their party has left them. Um, it's become the party of Trump. It's become the party of untruths. It's become the party... Of, um, of punitive actions aimed at hurting people. Um, it's at some point you have to get off the fence and say in its current visage, in its current form, the Republican party is a very destructive force and it does have to be defeated. And something new I hope will arise. What I hope that that will do, if the party of Trump, if the current Republican version of the Republican Party, which is the party of Trump and the party of fascism and the par party of anti-democratic, um, you know, actions, that if that party is defeated, then something new hopefully, hopefully forms that looks more like the Republic. I think we need two parties with very different visions of the good faith visions of the way the world should be that can work together and find common ground. That is not true that is not possible with the current Republican Party. The Republican Party needs to be reclaimed by the more moderate voices um, within it. And, 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 you know, it's, it's not just me. It's some of the leading thinkers in the Republican Party um, who uh, long time, very loyal Republicans who have said, we've got to destroy this thing right now that's calling it the Republican Party so we can reclaim the party for what it once was. And so I, I do feel that. I feel in its current form, you can't work with them. You can't collaborate with them. You have to defeat them so that we get, you know, like the Phoenix, the rebirth of the Phoenix, we, we get something that replaces it, that, that, you know, that is more like what we had. Yeah.
Uh, and I could see why you'd like the Phoenix, given its recyclability as, as a medical <laughs> creature. <laughs> Michael Mann is the author of Newly Out in Paperback, The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet. He's the inaugural director of the New Penn Center for Science, Sustainability, and the Media. Thank you so much. Great to talk to you. Oh, thank you, Mike. It was, it was really enjoyable to have this conversation with you. And now the spiel. There are lots of ways to lose a political race, but getting primaried is the one politicians hate most, mostly because they feel they have the most control over primaries. Very few incumbents aren't supported by their party at the local and national level, so the primary rightfully should be won. And that's the most painful hit to take, one that you're responsible for. Politicians are, in fact, practitioners of politics, the art of manipulating outcomes via shrewdness, scheming, subterfuge, sweetening the pot. A good politician knows there are many moves to make to protect one's turf. And that is one reason why New York State Democrats are so upset. A few years ago, in a referendum they supported, the state's voters demanded an end to gerrymandering. But after full Democratic control of both chambers of the state legislature and the governor's mansion, the Democrats in power couldn't help themselves. They interpreted this call for cartographic fairness to mean now is the proper time to slaughter the Republicans. I mean, that's fair, right? Well, it turns out when this notion was subject to the opinion of anyone outside the Democratic political apparatus, a different view emerged. Actually, fairly drawn congressional districts mean fairly drawn congressional districts. You would think that the injustice was done to the Democrats, however, if you listen to Congressman Hakeem Jeffries on yesterday's Face the Nation. Bottom line, did Democrats put their own communities at risk in your state by gerrymandering it to the degree they did? Well, the Court of Appeals was wrong in the decision that they made, both on the substance and in terms of turning over redistricting to an out-of-town, unelected special master and a judicial overseer in Steuben County, who's a Republican. Note that Steuben County is in New York State. These are the congressional districts for the whole state. He talks of the county like it's in Oklahoma or Jupiter. And while this particular judge that he referred to is in fact a Republican, the Democrats' unlawfully drawn map was adjudicated to be just that by courts on the district level, the Court of Appeals level, and the district level again. The district court that first ordered the maps to be fairly drawn was bipartisan, and the New York State Court of Appeals, the highest court in New York State, the one that ruled that the maps were made with an, quote, impermissible partisan purpose, that court is comprised of seven justices, all appointed by Democrats. As far as the out-of-town special master, weird phrase, it's a state matter. What's the town you're talking about? Anyway, as far as this guy, yes, he is an expert on map science from Carnegie Mellon University. And I say, better to have some nerd in Western Pennsylvania draw the map who doesn't know Charlie Rangel from Charlie's Angels than one of the local hacks do the job. But Jeffries continued, well, the process, unfortunately, was hijacked by the Court of Appeals. A bad process has now led to a bad result. You're talking about five different congressional districts where the black and Latino population was degraded. 
the only uh, uh, most significant Jewish district in the country has been detonated. Hijacked by the all-Democrat Court of Appeals following the law which the voters put into place. The new map would have 15 safe Democratic seats out of 26 plus 6 to 8 toss-ups. The Democratic ideal, the one that was thrown out, had only three competitive seats. So in other words, the new map will create more competitive districts and a congressional delegation that is more representative of the people. As far as detonating a significant Jewish district, the concern is over New York's 10th, which is still only about a quarter Jewish. It is represented by Jerry Nadler, or will it be? Because the redrawn lines for Manhattan slice the island in horizontal cuts, unlike the current map, which separates the east side from the west side. Nadler will now be in the same district as another septuagenarian long-term incumbent, Carolyn Maloney. A Shonda! argues the Jewish Community Relations Council. You can't have a West Sider like Nadler representing the East Side, they say. And I quote from them, East Side Jews can be clearly differentiated from West Side Jews. I do not want to tell you the name of the website where I downloaded the pamphlet called How to Spot an East Side Jew, but before I could properly peruse it, I encountered the Jewish Community Council's further argument, quote, it is hard for a non-New Yorker to understand how different the East Side and the West Side are. Well, as a New Yorker, I'll try to help you. I'll pinpoint the locus of the East Side-West Side split. Here it is. The West Side Jew shops at Zabar's. The East Side Jew shops at Eli's. Eli's last name, by the way, is Zabar's. Same family. And as far as the degraded role of black voters, this is a serious charge. And Jeffries has been taking out ads making the argument. Shirley Chisholm once said, if they deny you a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. Well, in 2020, we brought our chairs, thousands of them, and elected the most black candidates to Congress in New York state history. So now they're trying to move the table, drawing a congressional map that robs us of power and takes a sledgehammer to black districts. It's enough to make Jim Crow blush. It's time to fight like Shirley Chisholm. And the argument worked on the map maker. Jonathan Service of Carnegie Mellon, the out-of-state map maker, changed his draft to acknowledge the importance of keeping an historic black neighborhood intact. Quote, in the draft congressional map, I inadvertently split the community of Bedford-Stuyvesant. Now Bed-Stuy is together again. The new map actually preserves the racial makeup of the districts to a great degree, but it is true that some neighborhoods will be moved or split, and some of those neighborhoods will have residents, as residents, people of color. It is unclear if the New York delegation will lose a black representative. One black member, Mondaire Jones, will not be running against fellow incumbent Sean Patrick Maloney, who's white, but Jones has announced that he will be running now in lower Manhattan, where he doesn't live, but that's allowed in New York politics. Still, voters don't usually like it. And if Jones does run in that district, he'll be facing former New York mayor Bill de Blasio. It remains to be seen how much voters will like that. For all the anger allegations and alienated incumbents, one thing is clear. Sometimes when they don't give you a seat at the table, it's because you felt like you didn't need to make proper reservations. The New York State Democratic Party would not be in this position had it not tried to press its advantage with a gerrymander in violation of the state constitution. And now a genius map nerd has redrawn the map. 
I say pull up a chair, folding or otherwise. These are going to be some fascinating primaries. And that's it for today's show. The Just Assistant Producer is Corey Wara. The Just Senior Producer is Joel Patterson. And I want to tell you about a talk I'm doing on Thursday. It's a new format that the Comedy Cellar in New York is debuting. It is called a Cellar Talk. Maybe you heard there was this guy named Ted. I can't really tell you the exact branded name of the talk that Ted did, but it's like that only. And here's the big difference. No wireless headset. Gonna be talking into an actual mic. I think I'll take it out of the stand, put the stand behind me, say, how you doing today? Anyone from out of town? No, I'm going to be talking about the inefficiency of efficiency. It's a, uh, a talk, I, I, w- I would say a Theodore talk, but really a TED talk I've been working on. And I invite you to come to the Comedy Cellar, 6 p.m. Thursday. And guess what? Email them for a chance to win a free ticket. You still have to do the uh, two drink minimum. But if you want free entry, email them They don't have too many to go around, but they can try to get to, I think, the first couple people who email thesellertalks at gmail.com, thesellertalks at gmail.com. Michelle Pesca is the CEO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is produced in association with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash thegist. Oomperoo, jeeperoo, dooperoo, and thanks for listening. (laughs) 